0: Welcome to the Motherhood Reimagined Podcast, where we celebrate all paths to motherhood. I'm your host, Sarah Kowalski. Whether you're contemplating becoming a single mother, trying to be one, or already raising kids, this is the place for inspirational stories, expert advice, and informative guides celebrating those who didn't follow the rules as they share the heartache and joys of their paths. Be informed, be inspired, because you do not need to feel alone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. I just wanted to make a couple announcements before we get started. So first of all, I'm looking for more podcast guests. So if you're interested in being interviewed and sharing your story, please head on over to my podcast landing page. That's at motherhoodreimagined.com forward slash podcast dash home forward slash. Or you can just go to my website, motherhoodreimagine.com and follow the menu to podcast and find the sign-up form. If you have ideas for guests too, please shoot me an email at sarah at motherhoodreimagined.com and let me know who you think would be a great guest. The other announcement is that the tribe signature level membership is now live. You can go to my website again and follow the links for membership and go ahead and sign up. Right now I have a Thinkers Triers group and an egg donation, embryo donation support group. In these groups, you get weekly access to me via video call with the rest of the group, an online community to talk about what's coming up for you as well as tons of done-for-you research and reflection exercises and really everything you need to kind of help you navigate this choice and this process without feeling alone. So I hope you will join me. Now let's get started with our guest. Hi, I'm joined today by Laura. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thanks for joining me.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Yay. So to get started, I always like to ask people, like as a child, what were you expecting for your life and around motherhood and family and partnership?
1: Yeah, I feel like I had two things simultaneously in my brain. And one was the normalness, what you just get bombarded with these images, all the stories you read, everything you hear, all my friends, parents were mom, dad, and two kids. And so I think I just assumed that that's what I would do. But at the same time, I come from a family of abnormal people. And so I've never, it's never been my goal to fit into normal. You know, my brother is mentally retarded. My mom was bedridden for a lot of years. My dad is just kind of a difficult (laughs) character. So I I think that I never aimed for normalcy, maybe because had I aimed for it, I wasn't going to hit it. So for me, it was always important to be an outlier and be this person who wasn't the normal one. And I didn't wear makeup and I wasn't in the skirts and it was just not my goal to hit those kind of normal markers. And I was always a feminist. And so I don't think, I, I think part of me just assumed it was all gonna take care of itself and I would hit normal at some point. But the other part of me worked really hard to not want to be normal, not want to aim for those things until, I don't know, well into adulthood. But as a kid, I I think I kind of held both ideas at once. Mm.
0: And so what ended up happening as you grew older?
1: Well, I think through college, I always assumed that I would meet somebody in grad school. My parents had met in grad school. And so I think I thought that's what would happen to me as well. In fact, I remember being really sad at a Valentine's party my sophomore year of college because my boyfriend had broken up with me. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to meet anyone. And then I just had this epiphany moment of like, I'm going to go to grad school. What am I worried about? It's all going to happen for me then. (laughs) And I went to grad school and it did not happen for me then. And I went to law school and it did not happen for me then either, in part because my law school class was 70 percent women. And so there weren't a lot of men. And I was older going into law school. And so I didn't really worry about it. I mean, there are always boyfriends for short periods of time and everything seemed kind of normal and somebody would come along. And it wasn't until in my late 30s when I was, I don't know, I guess I was around 34, 35, a friend of mine had a good friend who was a single mom by choice. And so that, I think it planted in my head somewhere that this was an option. It wasn't very a a conscious decision because I think I had a boyfriend actually when I met her. But I think it must have lodged in my head because I broke up with that boyfriend and soon after that asked her to meet me for coffee to talk about becoming a single mom and how she had done it and... So what, what kind of the, calm, the moments that made me decide to do it were I broke up with this guy when I was 35 because I just felt like he was a kind of a loser. And if this is what men were like, I was better off without one. And I didn't trust his judgment. And I just thought, like, could I imagine having this guy drive my kid around in the backseat? I don't think so. I'd really rather, rather not. I'd rather not. And then my mom died when I was 37. And I that was like, if there's a moment in the story when I decided it's time to do it, that was it. Mm. I think because I had been close to her, and so losing that relationship, it felt like, oh man, I got to repeat this relationship with with somebody else, and I've got to make that somebody else, or it's not going to happen. And so she died in July of 2011, and I was in the doctor's office in August of 2011. Wow, sorry to mm. say. Okay, how do we make this happen? And I was coming to the end of a job. It had a five-year tenure, and the tenure was going to be up in October of that year. So, you know, the timing was not ideal because I didn't know what I was going to do next. But it kind of didn't matter. Like I just had this faith of this was the time to do it, and so and so I met with Yari, and we started trying.
0: Cool. And then how did that? How did getting pregnant go? What was that journey like?
1: It was really hard. It was that was 2011 and I finally had a child in 2014 so Mm. it was several months of so it it was sort of an escalating track which I imagine some people go through at first you think oh this is going to be pretty easy I'm only 37 right or maybe I was 38 because I turned 38 I think that August I'm only 38 this is going to be great I've seen lots of celebrities Janet Jackson that a kid at 50 like this is going to (laughs) be what am I worried about i have worried about getting pregnant my whole life right like (laughs) finally I'm going to make it happen and so I told the doctor, yeah, this is going to be great. Let's do unmedicated cycles. So we did that, except I could never, like they give you these test strips to try to figure out when you're ovulating. Mm. And uh, my little test strips never turned color. So I thought, well, this is weird. I wonder if I'm not doing it right. Or So I tried that for a few months and I was like, I, I don't know, doctor. We can try to do the math and figure out. But, but my cycle's never been regular. So trying to figure out the math of when 14 days back would have been, you can kind of only do it in hindsight, which is not useful when you need to know in advance when it's going to be. So so he said, you know, I don't think you're ovulating as regularly as you assume you are. So let's, let's put you on Clomid and then we can force it to happen and we'll, then we'll know the days and that makes it easier to do timed IUIs because that's what we're starting with. And so I said, okay, fine, little pill. That won't be a problem. It was the worst of of Mm. everything that I then went through, which came to involve a lot more medication. Like I still think Clomid was the worst Mm. because it throws your body into menopause. And so you have hot, well, I had, I shouldn't presume this happened to everyone, but I had hot flashes and just got super irritable and was grumpy. And I really, really did not enjoy that stretch. So I think we tried that for three months. And so... I mean the whole process is such a horrible <laughs> is such a difficult thing. And I think it's hardest at the beginning because you probably most people I would think probably start out thinking, okay, well, this will take a month or two, like this is not gonna be hard. And so I remember just being so stressed out about the, the timing and being sure every month the doctor was off, this was not the right timing, and he should have done it an hour before or two days later, or I don't know. I was always second guessing when he should have done it. Because you go in quite frequently. To the RE, I don't know what your audience already knows about the process, but when you're doing timed IUIs, you have to go in on the second day of your period and they look at like how many follicles seem to be forming. And then you go in, I don't even remember now, a lot. You go in like the seventh day and the ninth day, and then they have to decide is it is the main follicle, what day does it look like it's gonna be 20 millimeters? And you go in that day and hope for the best, but he doesn't measure it that day. I think in part, so you don't get disappointed that it's not still there or it didn't look big enough. (laughs) And some clinics, I guess, do it two days in a row. And I imagine that is more for the psychological effect for the woman than any actual success statistics. But so anyway, I went through this process several months in a row with the Clomid and with the Coleman, I did produce one egg every month, which is what you need, you know, but it didn't work. And so then he said, let's go on, let's move on to injectables, which meant injecting myself with medicines. I don't even remember the name of now, but I was really scared about this. I went back into my car and cried when he told me that this is what we had to do next. Cause it felt like such a, such a step that I didn't think I was going to have to take. Like this actually meant I was infertile or facing fertility issues. And like, I wasn't just able to do it, you know, which is so ridiculous because every part of the process is medicalized and I'm not able to do it. Right. (laughs) But, but for me, that was one of those hurdle moments where I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't want it to go that far. I'll just, I'll just what, I don't know sleep around, which that was my dad's solution. Also. <laughs> Why don't you just sleep with someone? And I won't say I didn't try that, but I'm glad that didn't work out because then you have somebody else who has a claim on your kid. Anyway, so, so then we moved into the injectables and it's scary. You have to figure out how to, I'm not a diabetic. I'm not someone who ever had to give myself injections before this time. So the nurse takes out an orange and shows you how to do your injections and that's nice. But there are two things about it. One, it's really expensive. All of a sudden that was the other aspect that like Clomid costs, I don't know, $30. Once you're into injectables, you're into thousands or or maybe at this point it was hundreds, but, uh, but it definitely took it up a notch. So then I did the injections and I, for a couple, maybe two more months and then we got to about, we're, we're in about August of the next, not about, we are in August of the next year, and I'm going to turn 39 pretty soon, and he decides to take it up a notch. Actually, that's not true. My regular RE went on vacation, so I was seeing the other RE, and he said, this has taken way too long. We're going to give you a lot more meds. So he had me do more, and, and I produced six eggs. And when you're doing IUI, the goal is not like an IVF to produce a ton of eggs, right? Because you're just going to shoot some sperm into your uterus where these eggs are. And so if you have six eggs in there, you could potentially create six embryos, which nobody wants. Well, Octomom wanted, no one else wants. So he does this and it produced three embryos. Wow. So my doctor comes back from vacation and is, you know, livid, but what's what are we going to do at this point? So I hyperstimulated. I had to have surgery and get quarts of what looked like, because I woke up with my legs still in the gurney and him still with a needle in my lady parts, removing what looked like apple juice. And that was the most pain I think I've ever been in, because I had put on, from the day I was pregnant, which was my 39th birthday, they called me to say, looks like twins, to uh, maybe two or three days later, went in to have this surgery, because I put on like 12, 15 pounds, And that's all just liquid that I don't totally understand how it works. But somehow your ovaries get leaky and they produce all this liquid and it can be dangerous. Even it can go into your lungs and whatever. It hurt a lot.
0: So this was even after you had conceived and yet you were still sort of your ovaries were hyperstimulating after...
1: That's when it happens.
0: Okay. Apparently
1: it's when you... Are successful that because the HCG makes the hyperstimulation worse. That's my understanding. So it's kind of like this mixed bag of like, wow, this really hurts. I must be pregnant. I guess that's good news, but like maybe it's not worth it because this is horrible. And the risk was that it would, that you'd, I'd have to go in every week. Like there's, I read a story, I mean, the internet's not your friend in your whole pregnancy journey, but that's another story. But I read a story about a woman who was going in every week to get drained because, oh my gosh, because it kept coming back. The other thing I want to say about the injections is, I, so they gave me instructions <laughs> on how to do the little needles because you have to do the subcutaneous So just get some juice, get the liquid into your fat uh, several nights in a row. And that is not that hard because it just has to go into your skin and they point out where in your belly or your leg you should shoot it and it's it's not that bad. But then for the trigger shot, which is the shot you take 24 hours, is it 48 hours? Some amount of time before you want the egg to trigger for the IUI. <laughs> I had this larger needle and it said, and the box of my whatever the trigger medicine was said, intermuscular only. So it's 10 o'clock on Saturday night. I'm sitting there, I take out my meds because my IUI is going to be on Monday. And, you know, the doctor's office is not open at this point, right? And I see this intermuscular only. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how to do this. I'm by myself. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how are you supposed to get a shot into your own behind by yourself? And like, you don't want to miss and hit a vein or an artery or, you know, so I was, I figured I couldn't, I didn't have, oh wait, wait, maybe I didn't have the intermuscular needle, but I saw it said intermuscular, whatever was the case. What I ended up doing was mixing it and then shooting it into myself over and over again with my subcutaneous needle because I didn't have an intermuscular needle. And so I think I might've caused the overstimulation myself by doing that. Although I really, I, I don't know. Right. It was bad on the doctor's part to give me the stuff that said intermuscular. and I still don't know actually now if I was supposed to do it. I don't think I was, because I never had to do intermuscular after that. But anyway, all that to say, there are lots of moments in this process when you're like, "Oh God, what am I supposed to do? And what have I done?" And you and there's so much energy, like so much effort getting those eggs made that you don't want to waste it by not doing your trigger shot, mm-hmm. like. You just make do and whatever. I mean, it triggered on time and I had my three little embryos. Okay. So I go into the doctor and they say, oh, look, three sacks. And then he says to me, you know, this is not a desired outcome. You're going to have to think about reduction because you don't want to, the risk of a triplet pregnancy is so high. I'm like, Like I've been in this process for years when I get pregnant and now I, you know, I'm overstimulated, really uncomfortable and he's telling me I'm going to have to abort one of these babies. But he said, "Well, one of them looks smaller than the other, so maybe it won't develop, and we just won't have this issue." And in fact, that's what happened. I went back to the doctor the next week, and two were chugging along, and one had stopped growing. So now we were in a twin situation, which he felt—I guess I felt too. I i wasn't upset about it. I actually thought there's some bright sides to having twins. I was okay with it. But you know, twin pregnancies can be harder than singletons. But you know, great twins, let's do it. So I'm moving along, pregnant. And then one day on my, I was 16 weeks pregnant and I went and had a prenatal massage Mm. at a fancy place. And later that day or in the middle of the night, that night, I woke up to all this liquid coming out of me Mm. and I was like, huh, did I pee my pants? Like I haven't done that in a long time. And I thought, you know, I think that was, that was uh, amniotic fluid. Like I think this is what people talk about as their water breaking. So I, I called the whatever number for my practice, the after hours number, so I wasn't talking to my own doctor, somebody else. And he's like, oh yeah, you're in labor. And I said, well, I'm only 16 weeks pregnant. And he said, oh. And I said, well, what can you do? And he's like, nothing. Mm. You need, you know, in the morning, go to your doctor and they'll take a sonogram and see what happens. So I went in in the morning and she took the sonogram and one of the sacks had ruptured. And She said, well, sometimes they seal up on their own. So you just need to hang out, lay low Mm. for a while. So I went home and sat on the couch again, probably looked in the internet too much for what happens in this situation. But I did see some stories of people being fine, but I was not fine. So, it was, that was a Monday morning when that happened on Saturday, I, I the contraction started mm. and it was pretty clear to me that this was not going to end well. And I remember, so I called the doctor and again, got somebody else in the practice group who, who was really not a nice guy. And he's like, well, you're here in labor. And I was like, well, what's going to happen? So you're going to lose some babies. And I was like, well, what, what other scenario could we try to work out? Like actually during the week I had called UCSF and I had wanted to see you know, could we could we terminate the one that was ruptured and then keep the other one? Because, you know, we talked about having to reduce early on in the game. So I know that's something that sometimes happens. So could we do that and then save the one if the one's not going to make it? But you see, couldn't squeeze me in all week. And who knows? Who knows if that would have worked? But so anyway, so yeah, so then it's just full on contractions on Saturday. Wow. So, I, so I call a guy, he says, you're gonna lose the babies. And I was like, well, I don't really want this to happen at home. Because I'm now 17 weeks pregnant. So it's not like just having a mm-hmm. miscarriage, which I had had at home. And that's not so bad that's just some tissue involved, but these actually, I don't know what these are going to like. These are going to look like little mm. babies. And I, what am, I'm, what am I supposed to do? Flush them down the toilet. Like, I mean, this I can't do this at home. So he called me back a few minutes later and was like, well, why don't you go to the hospital? And I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe you can save one. And he's like, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I'm i am kind of glad they gave me that hope that maybe they could save one. Although I've got to the hospital my dad, who was very cheap, dropped me off down the block because he found a parking spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh anyway. And so I go in there and I was like, oh, maybe you're going to save one. And then, so through the course of the night, the uh, contractions got worse and worse. And I remember saying to the nurse, like, how is one going to be saved? It feels like my uterus is just going to push out everything in there. How would one not get pushed out? And she's like, Yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: So yeah. that's what that's what happened. So they just fell out, mm. and then and then I remember the nurse came, the doctor came in, and she was like yelling at me. She's like, "I told you if you felt like you had to push, you were supposed to call me." Out. I didn't have that push, but you no know, they just they just came right out, and it was just the weirdest experience because I'm all alone and I'm in the hospital and I've just miscarried these little guys. And it's, again, the middle of the night when all things seem to happen. And this nurse comes in and says, I like to dress up the mm. bodies and take pictures. Mm. And so you could have that. And I was like, that is the weirdest. Sound. And I'm glad that I had enough self-awareness to know that I didn't want to see. I never looked at them, which I'm really glad I didn't do. And no, I don't want you to have some macabre <laughs> mm-hmm. dress-up time with, like, Mm. It was weird. And then I just felt like, you know, when you're in the hospital, people come in at all hours and it just felt like nurse, I don't know if it was kept being her or other people kept coming in and asking me, like, did I want them cremated? And did I want a burial? And did I? And uh, that that part was pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But I did not want any of those things. So, so I was there for three days and the RE came to see me. And and I was just like, well, okay, when can I try again? You know, I mean, it's not like it could have been worse, right? I could have lost my uterus. It could have been something that meant that I could never have babies. Like here we, he, and he told me it was a very, they don't know, they did pathology to try to figure out what it was. They have no idea. Just, you know, one of those things that sometimes happens. The bright side of that was it meant I could try again, right? There was nothing. Mm-hmm. There, there seemed to be no reason why it would happen again. So So then a month later... I had surgery to remove the products of conception Mm. and they scraped all that out. And then we started again. And then I had a couple more miscarriages, but much earlier in the game, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the doctor said, well, I think you need to move on to IVF. Because at this point I'd had 10 IUIs from which i would gotten pregnant, I think four times or five times. And so we did one more IUI in August of that year and but even with in, injectable meds I, I only created one egg and because the point of the injectables is to create more eggs mm-hmm. for higher chances so I only created one egg and we looked at the egg and I'm like one an egg <laughs> 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 but, but the nurse said well you know it only takes one and I was like yeah if I were you know a normal person having a norm, you know mm-hmm. I don't have one egg that's what you have every month so I went in to do the blood test and to find the paperwork for IVF and the blood test was positive positive. And then from there, the pregnancy was totally fine. I mean, obviously, having been through what I had been through, I was nervous about it. Mm -hmm. But it was totally fine. And then she, my daughter was born three weeks early, which was not so early as to cause any issues. It was just kind of a surprise. (laughs) And now she is about to turn five.
0: Wow. That is quite a journey. Yeah. Yeah. And... Do you have any advice for women who are trying for a long time or, you know, even having several miscarriages? It sounds like you had several. Yeah. How to kind of how to deal with that. I call it like the cycle of like hope and despair. Like how, yeah. do, how did you keep going?
1: So I'm, I'm a fairly analytical person. And I think for me, the fact that there was just no reason why it shouldn't work was important to me. It's I, I think you have to be realistic. And if your doctor is telling you, you have X or Y issue that is going to mean this is unlikely to happen for you, you you gotta listen to that and think about are there better ways to go? Should I use an egg donor? Should I, you know, skip right to IVF? Should I do other things? I think trying to do something where you have a five percent chance of success is a recipe for a real heartache. Mm -hmm. But when when it doesn't seem like there's any reason why this shouldn't work. You know, you got to keep the faith. And so that's what I did. And now when I tell people I had 11 IUIs, I'm like, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. You should move on after three. But, you know, I was getting pregnant. So Mm -hmm. to me, it seemed like it was going to work out eventually. But it's hard. It's certainly, it's nice to have other people, you know, going through it. I mean, I think joining, I was in a, actually, I don't think I was in a single mom's group at that point. I I think I was already pregnant before I joined the single mom's group. But I was on online when chat groups and, and I had other friends who were going through it. And so that was really useful. But it's it's one of those many issues that your friends don't want to hear about all the time. So it's nice if someone else is actually also doing it, then they're going to be more open to hearing you say, oh my God, here I am. I think the doctor waited a day too long or, you know, I'm worried it's not going to work this month or the sperm didn't get to the bank. It, the, the, the sper- I showed up for my IUI today and they said they didn't have my sperm. Like So many things oh. come up <laughs> that it's nice <laughs> to have somebody who's willing to talk to you about all that stuff
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: but but if you don't I mean you know online or joining a single mom's group now that I'm in a single mom's group I know that they do have whole there's the thinkers and the triers part of those groups and it would be really useful I think to have that community or or somebody else even if you pay a therapist or somebody it's just nice because you can ruminate and drive yourself crazy worrying about it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I think finding somebody to talk to about it is is definitely important.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: be and I think another thing that I was not prepared for is the financial side of it. Like you go in there thinking you're just going to need some clomid and a, a vial of sperm, seven hundred bucks, and the process, the procedures, a thousand bucks. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that is not what it ends up not what it ended up costing me. Mm-hmm. And when I, I tried to have a second child through IVF because I was forty two at that point that, you know, that was 55,000 bucks and I got no second child out of it. Mm. So the, the financial side is real. And if you, if you were really planning ahead, you could think about there are states that will pay for you to have IVF, right? Massachusetts is the only one I know of offhand where they, I think it's a law that insurance in that state cover it. That's something I think about if you're thinking maybe I'll live in Massachusetts, maybe I'll live in Rhode Island, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe for the year you're trying to be pregnant, that's a game changer or, or some companies, you know, some insurance covered it. Mine never covered a penny, but I worked for a Catholic company, and they, you know, they were not going to pay for that. Mm-hmm. But I think if people, or should you join Kaiser versus have a different plan? Like, I would. I, the financial side can really be a burden, so it's worth it's worth giving some thought to it in advance.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you've done the two week wait many times. Many, many times. Any advice for the two week
1: wait? You can't do anything about it. So, you know, I think you got to be grateful that you're in this position, that that month worked out well enough, that that you had the egg and that you, you know, were able to get the embryo and the timing of whatever that you were able to be in the two-week wait period, be a little grateful for that. And then try not to worry about it too much because there's nothing you can do during those two weeks to change it. Or, And I don't think there are many signs the month I got pregnant with my daughter, I do feel like I felt this pinch on about day seven or eight. And, but, you know, looking too hard for signs, I think is another way to drive yourself crazy. Mm -hmm. So I would say just get comfortable with the fact this may not be the only two week wait you have and you need to, Learn how to deal with uncertainty because mm-hmm. it's not. I mean, once you have a kid, then you worry <laughs> about so many more things. That <laughs> um, and then you know you have your parents, and they have go to the doctor, and you're waiting for those diagnoses, and waiting is a fundamental part of being a grown-up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that is very good advice. Hard to enact sometimes, but very good advice. Yes. So then can you talk a little bit about how you chose your donor and what that process was like for you? I don't know if you ended up having to choose a few yes. in that long journey.
1: I did. Uh-huh. I did. I did felt like anyone who didn't produce after two tries was kicked to the curb. <laughs> and I moved on to somebody else. Because how did I know it was me that was causing this, right? Like, mm-hmm. it takes two to tango. And so when I started, I was idealistic and thought it would take one. I, don't, I never bought more than two vials at a time. Because you don't know that you're going to need that many more. Mm-hmm. And I this, this one woman that I was telling you about who I knew from before I started my own journey, she had plunked down money for 12 vials. Oh, so man. she bought a, a year's worth with one guy and she went through all 12. Oh, and when God. she switched to another guy, it worked on the first oh. time. So that was somewhere in my head as well, uh-huh. knowing that had happened. So I I mean, it's a lot like internet dating. And especially if you're in your late 30s, you've probably been internet dating and you're, you're kind of giving up on it to switch over to now flipping through <laughs> men's profiles on the <laughs> sperm <laughs> banks. It's amazingly the same thing. <laughs> And I tried to be conscious of, like, I'm not going to date this guy, so I don't need to be charmed by what he says or what I think he would be like. On the other hand, your child is going to probably bear some resemblance to him, and, and it's hard to know what they're going to take from him. I like to think my side was just going to overpower whatever his side brought to the table because I'm going to you know physically be there. But So this is an area I actually spent less time on than, I think, Most people do. I went on, I wanted, I had been dating a lot of black men in the years up to that. So I first thought, okay, well, I'll look for somebody who looks like somebody I would date. So I tried to find a black man who was a identity release because one of the the decisions you make in your journey for the perfect sperm is, are they going to be an anonymous donor or are they going to be what's generally called ID release? And so you, your child would have a chance at age 18 to find out who this person is. And that was that seemed to me like a good idea. So that is a combination, African American and ID release, that largely does not exist, which could be an interesting study for why that is, but but I found that of the African American donors, they were uniformly anonymous. And so that kind of took them out as a as a possibility for me. And so then I thought, well, okay, doesn't have to be black. He could just be something a little bit spicy, you know. <laughs> so mixed ethnicity was an option, and I I didn't care what bank it was from either. I figured it was going to get mailed. So I looked at California, and I ended up using Fairfax. And because of this this guy that I found, and he, well, I don't I, you know honestly, I don't remember all the first ones. They they were all mixed. Ethnicity. I thought it would be nice if they were tall because if I had a son, I felt like he wasn't going to have a dad and he might get into fights and it would be good if he could be kind of a bruiser. <laughs> That's sort of the level of analysis I, I gave to this process. And I thought it would be good if, at first I thought, oh, I want him to have gone to college and it would be great if they had a graduate degree and let me look at the medical history and make sure there's nothing in there that would be objectionable. But after like six donors, I couldn't care less. You know, you just needed to have something not entirely white and be a little tall and everything else, whatever. I mean, he's not going to send this kid to college, right? I am. And I'm an educator. And so it just became, I became a lot less picky as time went by. And the medical stuff, I felt like all the people I've slept with up till now, like who, what do I know if their grandmothers had <laughs> any psychological issues, and who would report it if they did, right? I mean, it's nice that they claim that they have no issues, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. So this guy who ended up being my daughter's donor claimed to have been a Kosovo peace fighter, and he's a quarter Korean and quarter Italian and something else, and tall and, you know, sounds lovely, but I don't imagine we'll ever meet him. Oh, you never know. I mean, you never know. And I also wonder how the banks keep up with these people because they're supposed to allow themselves to be reached when the kid is 18, but they keep up Does he have to, is he under some obligation to keep his address current with them? Or I wonder how that happens. Mm -hmm. But another sort of tangent, we have since become friends with two, well, well, yes, two other Mm half-siblings. And one of them is older. So we'll see. She'll be able to reach out to him before my daughter can. Mm -hmm. And that will be interesting
0: hmm Yeah. Well, so just a, a quick note on that. I think every bank has a different sort of policy of how well they keep in touch with their donors. And I think that's something, if it's important to you, I encourage people to sort of investigate a little. And I yeah. put together like a guide on you oh. know, sort of the how what the sperm bank says about how they're going to kind mm-hmm. of keep in touch. And some banks just give you their name and their last known sort of information of address and email and some banks sort of broker the contact for you. And so there's big differences, but I think, you know, probably if you get the name and last information, you would be able to find the person pretty easily.
1: Yeah, I would think so.
0: So it's, it's an important thing to sort of know about your bank before you get, but yes, there is no obligation For the donor, it's he's saying he assumes he's going to want contact at 18, but he's not obligated in any way. So yeah, it is a big crapshoot.
1: Yeah. One of my concerns about that is um, the thing I most don't want is for my daughter to feel rejected. Mm-hmm. So I haven't, she's only, she's not five yet. So we haven't talked a lot about this, but in the years to come, I don't know how to talk about her future mm-hmm. opportunity to speak with him because mm-hmm. I can't control that. Right. He might be dead for one thing, or right. he might not, he have a new wife who doesn't want her to, him to speak to people. Mm-hmm. So, I don't want her to feel like when she's 18, she reaches out to him and he doesn't respond. I f- and, I, and I don't want her to fantasize for the next 13 years about how great it's going to be to have this relationship mm-hmm. with her dad, which is, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm happy to know the half siblings. We actually vacation together for a week every summer. We're about to go to a dude ranch in Colorado, nice. even though we're spread out around the country. But I want her to be able to talk to them about these kind of things mm-hmm. and go through it with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I'm glad that we, we have found a few
0: that's awesome yeah and how can you say anything more about that relationship with the donor siblings either for you or for your daughter and how you've navigated it
1: so we we found each other through the actual Fairfax cryobank website had a has a family forum so we just posted hey I use this donor number anybody else And there's a half-sibling registry, and someday I will make an effort to see if there's more people, I think. So my daughter's older half-sibling had posted on there, and I responded. And it turned out they live in Washington, D.C., and I was on my way. I was going to D.C. like a week later Mm -hmm. for a conference, and I was bringing my daughter because she was six months at the time. And so I went to D.C. and had these, they're a lesbian couple. Had them babysit my daughter while I went to the conference. (laughs) That's (laughs) awesome. And so the girls are only six months apart, so they've seen each other every year since since then. Mm. So we the next year spent one night together at a beach, and then last year we spent a week together in Florida. And then, as I said, this year we're going to go to Colorado for a week, and it's been great. They're only six months apart, so they're they're really similar, and they look a lot alike, and they sound alike, and they like to play the same way. So it's been cool. Mm. Those moms, though, are much more forthcoming about the situation. And they refer to my daughter as her sister. Mm. And they talk about, you know, penises and body parts and the donor in a way that I envy, but have not done myself. Mm -hmm. And in part, my daughter just seems a lot less interested in those things. But before we went to Florida last year uh we had we were on facetime chatting with the the other half sibling and she was talking about donors and how they had the egg in common. I was like, oh man, we got to get a book on this subject before we're about to spend a week with you. You <laughs> have an in-depth introduction into why, what you and this girl have in common. So we got a book about what makes a baby, which is a great book because it mm-hmm. doesn't assume any biological connection between the uterus, the sperm, and the egg. Mm-hmm. And so, so I was able to explain what, we ha- what they have in common. And, but I refer to her as a cousin. And I, I don't know, I don't feel like I've done a great job talking to my daughter about what it means to have a donor and what his role is so far mm-hmm. and I I mean I've certainly never lied about it but it's, it's not something we talk much about and I need to mm-hmm. but now we have another half sibling who we found who is in Minnesota and he's only two and we have FaceTime with him a couple times and so now my daughter's like wait a minute wait a minute who are these people <laughs> <laughs> right. and there's a fourth one who is in touch with the family that's in Washington D.C. this fourth one is also in Washington D.C but she has two kids, one by the donor and one not. And so the mom is not sure yet how to deal with the fact that the two are different mm. in, in vis-a-vis becoming part of our little group mm-hmm. of half siblings. Mm-hmm. But since they both live in Washington, D.C., it was bound to happen that they run into each other and they wow. did. So the other day, the ha- the mom who I know was at Starbucks and she, wa- she walks into Starbucks and there's the other mom and she sees the kid who looks like our kids. And then she, she hears her calling the older sister's name, which she knew. So she knew this was the family mm. And but but she felt like the mom didn't want her to say anything, so she didn't. But then when she got home, she texted her mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, I think I just saw you at the Starbucks." <laughs> <laughs> so it is a small world. Mm-hmm. Wow. But so maybe this year we'll talk about it a little more frankly when we're in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: Yeah, and yeah, we'll keep us posted because I love okay. to hear these stories. Yeah. And do you have any regrets about how you became a mother? Or do you wish it had happened differently in some way?
1: Well, yeah, sure. Sometimes. I mean, I, I wish I had more than one child. I mean, I'm 45 and my mom is past and my only brother is, you know, mentally retarded. And my dad is 76 and uninterested in his grandchild. So in some ways, my daughter's really alone in terms of family. And so I wish she weren't. And I wish we had more cousins nearby or these half siblings or something, you know, but they live across the country as well. And so I wish, I wish we had another sibling. Mm-hmm. And I wish someone else helped to pay the bills. Like <laughs> I often think that I don't mind not having a husband, but I really wish I had a mom because it would just be so great to have somebody else to pick her up you know, mm-hmm. to go to school. Someone else who is interested in the milestones. I think that's one of the things that it's really sad not to ha- like you get school pictures. Uh, no one wants my kid's school picture, you mm-hmm. know? And, or she is learning the ukulele. Oh, it'd be so great to have somebody to call and, and play the ukulele over the phone for them. But we just don't, it's just sad to me that there's just nobody that interested in her but me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I would like a, a, a partner and a father for her in that way. mm mm-hmm. But in terms of day-to-day, not having to share decision-making or my time with another person, I'm not sad about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think my daughter has turned out great. And I think actually the relationship that we have is, is incredibly close because there's no one else. So we spend all our time together. I mean, when I'm not at work, she's not at school. We spend all our time together and I can be responsive to her needs completely because there's nobody else I also need to please, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there, there, there are ways one can go overboard in this. She still sleeps in my bed, which is not ideal. But I also feel like it's a really solid foundation for a little human to grow up being the center of somebody's life and knowing she's really important to me. Mm -hmm. Maybe there aren't a lot of... And she actually it's funny at school. Her school, you know, we live in Berkeley, California. So there is an emphasis on making everybody feel good and not assuming that there's such thing as normal. And so at her school, we are in fact the only single mom family but whatever there's the illusion that there's diversity and and, respect, and so there is respect for diversity so she they do family activities where they draw and talk about their families and the teachers always tell me how she feels like she has a huge family because there's grandma and grandpa and cousins and cats and au pairs and babysitters and you know the half siblings so I don't think she feels as sort of alone as I sometimes worry mm-hmm. she will mm-hmm. But no, I think it's actually a really special relationship and I'm not I'm not sorry that I don't have to make dinner for somebody else and wash somebody else's clothes. Uh, I mean I don't have a very positive <laughs> view of the <laughs> man woman relationship I suppose, but but it's lonely. I mean there are times when you, especially when the kid's a baby, I think there are times when it would be really great to have somebody else say, well, what do you think we should do? Well, Do you think we need to go to the doctor or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to share those milestones and stuff. It's, it's, it's a little sad to do that alone. I mean, it wouldn't have been my first choice, but I think it's worked out well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would you say is the most surprising thing about your path and how it turned out?
1: I think I really had no idea what I was getting into And I'm glad. (laughs) uh, Certainly in terms of just the physical producing the baby part, I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, I I didn't know it was going to take three years and 11 attempts and four surgeries and, you know, the amount of money and all those things. And had I, I don't know, who knows, who knows what I would have done. But in terms of having the child, I think that too has worked out better than I probably, I think I, I think I, you know, it's hard to remember being a little kid. I think my memories are all of being a much bigger kid and my parents were not that big a part of my life. Like, sure, I saw them, we ate dinner together every night, but when you're 10, 11, 12, they're not, they're not with you every hour of the way when your kid is two and three and still now at four like every hour we're together. And I, I didn't know that that would be okay. Like to me, that sounds incredibly oppressive. And there are moments when I just want to read a book by myself for sure. But but I've liked it a lot more than I, than I would have thought. And it's just much more all-encompassing of your life than I realized. Like you think you have a job, you have your friends, you have a kid, and these are all things that make up your life. And that's true. But having a kid really... Covers and colors everything else you do in a positive way, but it's really just so much bigger than than I realized it would be.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about being a working mom and how that's been for you?
1: Sure. I so I'm a lawyer, and i I think I've been pretty lucky in that I've since I started this. Journey. I have been an in-house attorney for most of it, and I've been at big food companies where the hours are not grueling at all. And everyone else here is also a parent, and so I have my challenges, but they're pretty minor, I think, compared to other folks because I, I make a big enough salary that I can afford childcare, and my and and I work nine to five, so I feel like I have a good amount of time with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I would. I wish that there were an avenue to work part time because I would like to work less and see her more, mm-hmm. or just be a human <laughs> outside of work more. Because <laughs> when you work and have a kid as a single mom, like you never have much time to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I have one friend who carves out Saturday mornings for herself. She has a babysitter come, so she has that time. But you know, it's very little when you're used to having had a lot of time before. That it's challenging to you're either at work or with your kid and there's nothing else. And I would like to work less so that I could have an afternoon to myself every week. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm kind of a lazy worker. So I get that. I just (laughs) work from home and do my errands and stuff in that part. But I, 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 I've dreamt of other jobs that I'm scared to take because I don't know what the hour situation will be. And I just feel like I can't, And I won't work 60 hours a week Mm -hmm. because my kid is very important to me. So I had a, I worked in tech for six months and the job was fun, but I was working from, you know, I got home at seven o'clock at night and then sometimes we'd have phone calls from 7.30 to 8.30, Mm -hmm. sometimes meeting every Thursday. And that was not a family friendly situation. So in that job, my boss didn't have a kid, and I think it makes a huge difference that your boss also has kids or your colleagues mm-hmm. because because people can talk a nice game, but unless they actually are also dealing with how 24 hours a day kids are, mm-hmm. they don't understand. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it would, I, I'm not incredibly ambitious. I just want to pay the bills, and it would be nice to like my job, but I'm not gunning to be general counsel or anything. But, and if you were, you'd have to make some, some serious trade-offs about how much you're willing to work. I'm not sure whether you have a kid or not, really.
0: Right, right. And how have you created the support network for yourself? I know that your family has not been, well, your mother's not there and not necessarily that present. How have you managed to create a good support network for yourself?
1: I mean, in terms of childcare, I just have to pay for, for it. Mm-hmm. So I have paid for uh, when my daughter was small, I had a full-time nanny. And now I have an au pair and I, I don't like having an au pair. I don't like having somebody in my house, but it's just a trade off. I feel like I have to make right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I would rather, if I could work part time, then I could take my daughter to school and pick her up, and I wouldn't need the au pair, and so that would be great. And I would like to make that happen. It's really hard to find part time situations, though. I, mm-hmm. Or, yeah, in terms of other support, it's lacking. You know, I find one thing that's been surprising to me is that my friends who are in couples don't don't invite me to anything, and I think they feel weird about my being. Single, and I and this might be separate from being a mom, but like the numbers are odd, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, like I don't, I never get invited to anything. And maybe they assume I can't come because I am a single mom, and so I would have to get a babysitter or whatever. But socially, I definitely only see people with kids, and, and our kids get together and play. And I very rarely do anything grown up. And I am sorry about that, but that's kind of how it is.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I experienced that a little bit too. Yeah. And have you dated at all since you have become a single mom?
1: No, I have gone through spates of thinking, oh, you know, I have this au pair now, so I could go out at night and I'm going to do that. So I have signed up. I'm on match at the moment. My membership expires in a few days. And when I was in my thirties and I would internet date, I got lots of people to write to me and I went out on lots of dates. <laughs> when you're 45, you just not the guy you were at 32. So, and you know, I mentioned in there that I'm a mom, so no one writes to me and I'm not interested in any of them. And apparently none of them are interested in me. So I don't know where I would meet somebody. I kind of have this hope that there'll be a divorced dad circuit once once we're playing soccer. I mean, we're already playing soccer, but they're not divorced yet. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe when she's a little bit older, there will be that. Or in elementary school, maybe. I had hoped that with her going to preschool, there would be more social interaction. But that hasn't really happened. But maybe in elementary school, we'll meet more Mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. Because I could really only imagine dating somebody who also had a kid. But maybe that's silly. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't, you know, I go to work and then I go home and I don't meet anyone. So no, right. no date. Right. <laughs> but I care about it a lot less than I would have expected. Mm. Like I, you know, who's got the time, who's got the energy and I'm 45. I've I've been on a million bad dates. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not that eager to go out on another one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In hindsight, would you do anything differently in any part of your journey?
1: Yes. In college, I would look harder for a husband. <laughs> college or in grad school mm-hmm. yeah
0: okay um, can you say a little bit more about why
1: oh well I, I mean I think that's when people are single is before they're you know 26 27 and if I had been able to find somebody and then we could have had more kids because I would yeah as I said before like to have more than one and then my daughter could have a dad which seems nice mm-hmm. and it would just be a little less scary because now I was just on the phone today with my retirement advisor, you know, when you got to do everything by yourself, pay for the house, start to think about your kid going to college. I'm considering maybe a private elementary school, although I don't think I'm considering that anymore. It's really daunting. And just having a second person, like, Cause my, you know, my mom was sick for a long time. Like, if that happens to me, what's going to happen to my daughter then? You know, so just having someone else—not even really in a romantic sense, although you know that could be nice too—but like just the brass tacks of having another person responsible and part of the picture would be nice. Mm -hmm. But then to also have somebody who actually enjoyed their company and you know maybe they made dinner sometimes, like that sounds pretty great. (laughs) So I'm I'm sorry that 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 didn't work out, and I don't I don't know. I mean, I have very sl- slim hope of finding anybody now, and I just don't know where they would have come from if they didn't come from college, grad school those years.
0: Mm-hmm. And what, in what ways has being a mother been different than what you expected?
1: Well, I mean, you know, my daughter's a lot better company than I expected. I think when I... Other people's kids always seemed kind of annoying and needy and clingy, and their noses were always running. But my own daughter <laughs> is charming and... <laughs> funny and we have real conversation and i i enjoy doing kid things much more than i thought i would like i love going to the science museum and i like going to the beach and looking for you know in the tide pools and i even like going to disneyland and i like all that stuff much more than i thought i would have i mean ask me again when she's 10 and 11 and i'll probably have a different answer but but for now i have found the actual day-to-day activity of being a mom much more fun than Mm -hmm. i than I thought I was going to think, and even when she was a baby, she wasn't a great company then. But I, she was cute and funny in a way that I didn't appreciate with my with other babies that I saw or knew. And I still don't really care much about other <laughs> children. But I like her. Actually, I like her whole school. I really like going to the preschool and being involved with all the little kids there. Mm. I just have a, a, a new appreciation for for kids. And the other thing, actually, that's happening with us right now is. I did not grow up religious, but she and I are both getting baptized on Easter Mm -hmm. because we joined a church last year. And I think that going to church has changed how I see humans in some way. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think part of being a Christian is seeing the potential in all people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has had an effect on me and how I see particularly small people who haven't done anything horrible yet. (laughs) But, and, and actually that's, you know, you asked the question a little bit ago about community. And I think for us, I've been so disappointed in my own friend network and everyone's always so busy and people work too much. And then they have their own kid activities that I've, I've had to find other community. And and so where I've found it is single moms and then, and then at church, Mm. because there are, there are groups of adults my age with kids who are active in the church, and so for us, it's been it's been a nice community. And there's you know camping trips and Sunday school, and and I'm making beer. I'm leading a little brewing activity on Sunday at the church this week, and so so we have found it there, which is a fairly unexpected thing. And no one in my family is religious at all, but nice. But it's been good for us. Yeah,
0: that's really nice to hear. What do you like least about being a mother?
1: The lack of free time. I mean. It just feels like you never have a minute to yourself. That's how it feels mm-hmm. to me and I, I there are ways that I could be better about it like i go go to bed or, I go to bed with my daughter at eight thirty, <laughs> <laughs> and I understand other grown ups are not asleep at eight thirty and I'm not getting up early. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's an exhausting way to live, and I'm tired, but I would like to I'm hoping someday she will sleep in her own bed and then I will read in the afternoon you' just have that evening time to myself. Uh-huh. Because right now it just feels like there's no time to myself, and I so I never have time to just think and read, and you know, not be either working or momming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
0: any other advice that you would give to women who are on this path, either still contemplating, or trying, or even parenting?
1: Yeah, I mean, my advice is to not be scared if you're if you're considering it if you feel compelled to do it, like lots of women have done it. And even before it was medically a thing you could choose to do. Lots of women found themselves in the position of being single women or single moms. But now that it's something you can choose and control, certainly lots of women do it. And I think if being a mom is important to you, then you shouldn't let the fear of doing it without a husband and sort of the social side of that stand in your way, because it's such a incredible experience and it becomes such a huge part of who you are that to deny yourself that because you're scared or disappointed, I think you might be sorry that you made that choice. But I would also say it's reasonable to give yourself some time to grieve not having your family look the way you wanted it to. And you know, and have as I do some lingering thought that you would have done things differently had everything been under your control. I mean, I think that's okay, but I can be simultaneously happy with with what is Mm -hmm. and I would also encourage people to meet other women who do it because it can seem and it can be really overwhelming but seeing other people and talking to them about well how do you make this work is really valuable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it could be you could assume your family's anti and they're going to think you're crazy and be surprised that people are happy for you I have found my extended family was much happier for me than I thought they would have been and my dad too
0: Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. I think that that was the case for me too, that I thought I was going to get so much pushback and everyone was like, Oh, that makes perfect sense. Good, good idea.
1: Yeah. There are, there are those funny comments. I remember telling my boss that I was pregnant and he's like, oh, I didn't even know you were married. <laughs> it's Like funny, you don't have to be married to have a child. Right. And you definitely, yeah, I mean, th- through the whole stretch, there are those moments of like, oh, where's your husband? Mm. And where's the dad? And oh, the dad must be tall. And mm. I mean, you, you have to develop a bit of a thick skin around those topics. But to trade that with not having a child, I mean, there's no question that it's worth having to deal with the little discomfort to, mm-hmm. to be able to do it. And I would also encourage people not to wait too long because the reality of your biology is that it gets harder and harder the older you are and if you especially if you want to have more than one, you know, you got to get on it. Mhm. Mm-hmm. I I can second that thought.
0: Anything else you would like to add before we close?
1: I don't think so. I just really encourage people if they don't know single moms in their area, there's a national group, Single Moms by Choice. Mm-hmm. There are other groups too, the Na- Choice Moms, I think is another one. And on Facebook and all those places, you can find communities and, and talk to people about how they did it.
0: Right, yes.
1: And are doing it. Yes, yeah. I
0: agree. And my community is also available. Oh, yes, yes.
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> So thank you so much for joining us. It was really wonderful to hear your perspective and a successful outcome after a really, really hard time getting there.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah. If you liked today's episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe and leave a review. I so appreciate your support to spread the word about this project. If you'd like to hear more about my journey, please read my memoir, Motherhood Reimagined, When Becoming a Mother Doesn't Go As Planned. It's available everywhere books are sold. Join me next week when I speak with Joanna, a good friend of mine. I was actually present at the birth of her first son. We talk about everything from a force reduction due to a genetic abnormality to what it's like to have two kids, one that's genetically related and one that's not. We really have a great discussion diving into lots of topics. and She shares lots of wisdom. Don't miss it. See you next week. Bye for now.